Thank you, Matt. Um, yeah, so I'm Eric. Some of you have met my wife, Sarah. She's, she sings sometimes up there, and maybe you've seen or most likely heard my kids running around, and I think Jude is normally the one who always needs to tell Matt Cruz something when he's up here. Um, so we are, we are just a, a family who is really excited, really grateful for what God is doing in this church. Uh, we, we love this church because uh, the full gospel is preached here every single Sunday without exception, and, and, uh, and God is doing an amazing thing here, uh, no question. And so, as Matt said, we've, I've been leading the Saugus community group for some time, and that's been a privilege and, and an honor for me to do that. Grateful for that opportunity. And I'm also going to be joining the, the Ox Track, which is our church's way of assessing and training those who may be interested in being part of the elder team here at Seven Mile Road. Uh, so I am excited. I'm looking forward to it. It's been, it's been a, sort of a long time waiting, but I think God's timing ultimately is, is, uh, is happening here, which is, which is most important. I think we can all agree in that. So really, we are excited to be able to participate in what God is doing. And really, that's what I'm be talking about today is we get to participate. It's, it's a privilege for us that we get to work for God. We get to do godly work. And, uh, you know, God's, God will get it done. God's building his church. God's building the kingdom. And we get to participate in that. And isn't it wonderful? Isn't it awesome that we get to do that? We get to participate in something that is divine. And so today I have not just the difficult task for me, I have an impossible task, and that is because what I'm supposed to do, or my job today, is to open your hearts to what God has said in his word, and only God can do that. And so let's pray right now that, that he would do that. God, we come before you now and we confess our need for you to be in this room. I pray that you would open our eyes our spiritual eyes, to see what you've said here today, that we would be encouraged, or that maybe uh, people for the first time are hearing this, that you would open their eyes for the first time to your glory, and that those of us that know you well would be encouraged. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So I wanted to start this out and just tell you a little uh, illustration of a band that my wife and I really like called Sleeping at Last. Some of you may have heard of them. But this is one line that they sing that really stuck with me. And it goes, life is a mess. We wake up to a single thread of a deeper truth. And the reason why that stuck with me is because I often thought that myself. We're, we're born, we're, we're born on the earth and it's like we wake up to this mess and we're like, what is this? Why? Why do I have to live in this mess? Life is messy, and uh, some have, have compared it to a war, that we, we wake up to this battle, we wake up to this war that we're in. Everything just feels like a struggle. We feel like we're getting pelted every day by, by enemy fire. And, you know, war can seem glorious if you're watching Lord of the Rings, and that's why we like things like that, because it can be really glorious and really, really fun if you're winning. But war is really terrible, actually. And uh, it's even more terrible when you're losing. 
So we're in a war. We are, we are actually in a real, real war. It started a long time ago with Adam and Eve, our first parents, who decided that they would go their own way. And the war is between sinners, that's all of us, and a holy God. And, and guess what? If you haven't figured it out by now, we're, we're losing that war if we're not on his side. God wins this war. It's not like the struggle between good and evil. God knows the end, and God's winning. And so we win if we're on his side. We win if we're part of the kingdom. So this war is more serious than physical war and terrorism and anything else that might be going on in our our life, our world today. Uh, But it's all part of this war. Uh, Some examples, you know, in in my own life, me and my son just went camping and we got Lyme disease. Both of us, me and my son got Lyme disease. Um, And I'm feeling great. I don't feel bad. But it's like, it's a pretty serious thing, they say. And I'm like, why, God? I'm just trying to serve you, love my family. And then something like this happens. Aren't you all powerful? Can't you keep things like this from me and my family? Some of you have experienced thorns in, in your work. Work is hard. And like Matt said one time, it feels like you're just constantly pushing a rock uphill. Some of you feel abandoned by your family or your friends. And some of you, as you, as you, as you get to know our God and get to know his holiness, you become wiser and you see the sin in your own life. And maybe you feel like a failure. And maybe the, the, the closer you get to God, the more you see his holiness, the more that you see your sin and you're discouraged. I have a really uh, a great privilege this morning of bringing some encouragement to you because God wants to encourage you. Sometimes sermons are about rebuking us and saying, you know, we really need to do a better job at this or that. This, this scripture really, uh, the one that we'll be focusing on is about encouragement. Jesus encourages us with the promise of helping him build his kingdom today. And that's the big idea of my text or of our text this morning. Jesus stands with you today to encourage you, Christian, with the promise of building his kingdom. So the the text uh, is Acts 23, 1 through 22, and Laurel did a great job of reading that. As you could see, that was an enormous text. Maybe you're thinking, does this end? How many chapters is this? Uh, it's a long, it's a long text. So, uh, in summary, there was this great opposition, great chaos. Christ stands in the middle of that and encourages Paul, and then he delivers on that promise. That's the main. That's the main thing that happens there. Uh, it all started, if you remember, last week talking. Uh, I believe it was last week. Maybe it was the week before. We were. Uh, Tim mentioned Trophimus, how Paul had been hanging out with the Gentile. And a Gentile is somebody that is not a Jew. So uh, I was going to pick out Felipe. He's not here. But if, you, if you're not a Jew of Jewish descendant, any, any of you, then you are a Gentile. Right? You are not part of the Jews. You are a Gentile. And Paul was hanging out with the Gentiles. And then he was saved from yet again another mob of people. And then he preached. He asked the Roman guards, can I preach to these people? And the, the Roman officials said yes, because they're uh, confused as to what's happening, and so they allow him to speak. And again, he brings up the Gentiles, and, uh, and they, are, they are really frustrated with him. So we find ourselves now uh, with Paul before the Sanhedrin. 
a group of 70 Jewish elders. These are the people who have the biggest hats, the fanciest hats. Some of you have seen uh, some of the Civil War movies with the people with the wigs. You know, the longer the wig, the more important you are. These are the big wigs that he's before here. And the Romans are totally confused. Have you ever uh, seen the, the TV show Lost? I think even if you watch Lost from beginning to end, you're still kind of lost. But I had the privilege of just seeing one episode in the middle. That's being really lost, right? You don't know where, you, you, you have no idea where the story has been or where it's going. And in the same way, Rome is totally confused as what's happening here. Paul, keep, it seems like he's just speaking honestly, and he's just using words and theology, and they just wish that they would settle this matter. And so in verse 1, uh, he, he mentions that he has a, a, a clean conscience. He looks at him right in the eye. Have you ever seen somebody who just can't look at you at all in the eye? You're just wondering, what are they hiding? Paul looks them dead in the eye, and he says, I have lived my life in good conscience. So Ananias strikes him in the mouth. I've never been struck in the mouth, but I imagine that hurts quite a bit. I just bite my lip, and I feel like I need morphine for that. And then Paul reacts to him, right? And we see this, this crazy reaction because Paul knows this is illegal. He has been, uh, he's been just dragged in here, and uh, he's just been struck in the mouth by just talking. This would be like if you go on trial, you've been convicted of something, get dragged to court, you start opening your mouth, and the judge orders the bailiff to taser you in the face. Like, I haven't even said anything yet. And so he's mad. And he, he says that God's going to strike him, the high priest, he doesn't know yet that he's the high priest, but he says, God's going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Later on, we find out that Ananias actually is struck. He's chased down by, like an animal, hiding in a drainage pipe years later. Um, but a whitewashed wall, what is that? Have you ever been called a whitewashed wall? Not me. Uh, sounds pretty bad. I think anytime you uh, call somebody an inanimate object, object, that's usually not a good thing. Jesus, we, we kind of hear this whitewashed wall. Didn't Jesus say something like that? And Matthew 23 says, Woe to you, Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs. To whitewash something was to make it pretty on the outside, to hide what's inside. So this isn't, I just want to pause and say, this is not a prescription for us to just call people whitewashed walls. You ought to know what you're doing if you're calling somebody something like this. Paul says he's lived his whole life in good conscience. Uh, so, but, and we're also not Paul's judge here. Did Paul make the right decision? Should he have called them a name? This is between Paul and God. But the point here is that things are tense. Paul's angry. He has righteous angry, anger. He's just been struck in the mouth. He's angry. These people are supposed to be leading God, right? They're supposed to be helping the people. He finds out it's the high priest. He pleads ignorance. <laughs> and, and I think he actually really didn't know 100%. He, could have, he probably could have guessed uh, that he was the high priest. But verses 6 through 9, then, we see that he creates a, a dissension. So just when you think things can't get any weirder or worse, it's like Paul takes a smoke bomb and just throws it into the room, like Batman, and throws his cape around him and runs out of the room. Because he creates this dissension on purpose. He sees that the room is filled with Pharisees and Sadducees, who are sad, you see, because they could not believe in the resurrection. That's how I remember it. It's kind of dorky and, and, or whatever, but that'll be easier for you to remember. 
They don't believe in the resurrection, and they don't believe in, in things like angels uh, and, or spirits. And so Paul sees this, and he says, oh, this is why I'm, I'm here. I'm on trial for the hope of the resurrection. Now, uh, John Calvin, who has studied law, sees this sort of trial situation, and Paul say this thing, and he goes, what? That borders on a lie. I think that's maybe a little strong. I think Paul was being shrewd. He was using wisdom. Because on the surface, maybe, yeah, he was there because of the Gentiles. He was there because he was hanging out with the Gentiles, and uh, he had uh, he'd been accused of bringing one into the temple, which he really hadn't done. But the root, the root of this issue was the resurrection. And that's because the gospel is about the resurrection. Our God, who is in heaven, became a man. He took on flesh and became a man. He lived a sinless life, the life that we could not live. He died for our sins. And then he was raised again so that all who hope in that, all who hope in him and believe him in him would also rise again. That's incredible and that's amazing. But you can't have any one of those pieces taken out of the picture. 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 19 says, If Christ has not been raised, your faith, it's futile. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. So the bottom line is that uh, it was about the resurrection. And one commentary I read wrote, It's therefore an act not of guile or deceit, but of sagacity and policy to take advantage of this circumstance and to divide his opponents, and under the cover of their division to save himself. So we see all the corruption here in what's supposed to be God's people. And it's a blessing for us to see the chaos. It was a blessing for them to see the chaos of that day, the chaos of that situation. So in other words, we're not just supposed to go around like Paul and create chaos. This was God leading him and doing this through him. And some people believed in Christ that day. The gospel, preaching the gospel is, is what, causes divisions. And so Paul's then rescued by Rome. They don't really care so much about Paul as they do their own reputation, right? They're supposed to be taking care of Roman citizens, but God is really the one rescuing Paul through them. And then Jesus comes and he comforts and encourages Paul. We're going to come back to this because this is really pivotal to this passage. The people, uh, a group of 40 men vow to kill him. So you see the hatred here, the extreme hatred for Paul and his message, and there's no disapproval from the Jewish council as they come and tell him this. And then at the very end, Paul's nephew hears about this and is able to go tell the tribune. In previous passages of Acts, you remember the earthquake? Paul's rescued through a miraculous earthquake. Paul's rescued again, but it's not through an earthquake. It's through this little boy who thwarts the plans of 40 murderers. And Paul is then escorted away like royalty by an army of Roman officials. That's incredible. One commenter wrote that God delivered St. Paul from peril by the aid of his nephew, just as truly as if he rescued him by the hand of an angel. So we see there was great opposition, great chaos and confusion. Jesus comes in, encourages Paul, and then delivers on his promise. So Jesus encourages us with the promise of helping him build his kingdom. God himself stands with you. Jesus stood by Paul. It was the night. Often, other times in scripture, we hear that uh, Paul had a vision or that he was in a trance. 
This says that Jesus stood by Paul. And Paul apparently needed encouraging. The Apostle Paul needed encouraging. And Jesus commands him, take courage. We ought to be encouraged that this is the heart of our God. Paul's a, Paul is a brother. We have one pastor, his name is Jesus. There's Jesus, and then there's the rest of us. And so if Paul needs encouraging, you need encouraging. We ought to be encouraged by God's presence in our, in our lives. When I was a kid, I remember being so scared of the dark. Some of you may remember that as a kid. I was just petrified. I lived in the sticks of New Hampshire, and it would be something as simple as my dad telling me to go bring in the groceries from the driveway, and I was just terrified. I can't go out there. I was like terrified of ferocious creatures like baby raccoons, you know, who I thought would come and attack me and give me rabies because that was going around and a big thing when I was in school. Um, I was just deathly afraid of animals. But if my dad went out with me, all fear was gone, completely gone. I could go anywhere. I could walk through the woods if I wanted with him in in the night, and and that would be fine. So we should be encouraged that God stands with you as well. The heart of our God is to stand with you and encourage you. And, and I know that you need encouraging. Because if the Apostle Paul who wrote scripture needed encouraging, then you need encouraging. Our pastors need encouraging. Some of you, like I said, feel overwhelmed with where you are. Take courage. God is with you. Some of you feel depressed, and then you end up feeling depressed because you know you're feeling depressed. Right? It's a kind of a cycle there. God is with you. Some of you feel abandoned by your, by your family. Paul had a sister. Just hear about this lady. Where's she been this entire time through all his trials? Take courage. God's with you. And some of you see your sin. Some of you, as you come closer to God, see your need for, for God and you feel inadequate. I wonder how many times the Apostle Paul, who was supposed to be writing scripture, who is also a man, not without sin, felt his inadequacy, and Christ stood by him and said, take courage. So how do we take courage? It's like easy to just say it, take courage. Well, if you're, if you're not feeling encouraged right now by the preaching of the word, then you should get in the word and read it and read it and read it. Someone once said, uh, stare at the glory of God until you see it. Journal your prayers so you can look back and see, oh, God actually answers my prayers. Fast every once in a while. Tell your belly who your God is so that you can be encouraged that God is truly with you. So it's the heart of our God to stand with us and encourage us. And it's not with less suffering. The next thing uh, that we see here is that it's not with less suffering. Isn't it amazing that, that Jesus says, just as you've testified, isn't he supposed to be here to encourage Paul? And yet he's saying, just as you've testified in Jerusalem, you're going to do the same thing in Rome. Take courage. How is that encouraging? You mean I'm going to be uh, beaten with rods? You mean I'm going to be flogged or, or almost torn in half here? That's, how is that encouraging? It would be nice if Jesus said, hey, Paul, you know how you're like making these tents? Well, you're going to be a tent manager. People are going to make tents for you. And you're going to go to Rome, going to live a nice life, make six figures with benefits there in Rome, You'll, it'll be great, and you could preach the gospel. That's encouraging, right? No. Paul is encouraged by being able to 
to preach here. When I was younger, I remember dreaming of one day making enough money, just, and this is a long time, and I can't believe I thought this when I was a kid, but it was for years. Like, I'm going to make lots of money, and then I'm going to go live somewhere on a farm where nobody can bother me, and I'm going to just be self-sufficient, isolated. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. I'll just be on this farm. You know, it sounds great. Some of you, that's your dream in this room right now. Um, but it's, a lot of it is you know, we have this idea of we just want to escape. And many of us uh, are, are not dreaming of a farm, but it's happening here right in Melrose where people are hoarding their wealth and then just isolating themselves. My neighbor literally said to me, do not look at me, do not say hi to me, do not come to my door. That's the kind of isolation that, that we want. We want to escape. We want to escape from, from everything, let alone suffering. Paul's, Paul's enduring suffering, right? We think suffering is traffic on Route 1. You know, that's our idea of suffering, really. We think that suffering is having to clean up after our kids, myself included sometimes. Um, you know, we think that, that, that suffering are, is all these things, but what happens when suffering really comes or what happens when persecution really comes here? What happens when right now what I'm doing becomes illegal? Am I still going to do it or am I going to run away from that suffering? Are you going to still come to church if it were illegal for you to meet here? If it was dangerous for you to be a Christian or talk about the gospel, it seems to be coming more and more of a reality for that to be true. So we ought to take this application and see that we should take encouragement, and it's not just from no suffering. We should avoid making it our goal to eliminate suffering from our lives. We're in a war. This is a war. We should expect suffering, right? So how are we to be encouraged then if it's not, if it's including suffering? Well, God stands with you in this chaos. He stands with you, his presence, to encourage you, not with less suffering, but with godly work. Look at what Jesus encourages him with. It's more preaching. And Paul's encouraged by that somehow, unless we're to think that Jesus somehow came and told him to take courage, but his encouragement was ineffectual. No, Paul is really encouraged here. And Paul's glad to suffer if he needs to, if he can preach the gospel. Some of you think that preaching is like double suffering. First, there's like normal suffering, and then there's preaching. You want me to preach? That's, That's horrible. But no, Paul doesn't think that way. He wants to thank God. He wants to praise him. He wants to preach, and he wants to tell others the good news. There's an illustration from, from, from my life I feel like I could give here where a, uh, somebody gave me, my wife, a tremendous gift, uh, a monetary gift. And we were overwhelmed. We were overwhelmed by it. And one of the worst things from getting that huge gift was figuring out a way to thank the person. Have you ever just not known how to thank somebody, especially somebody who gives you, you know, a large sum of money. It's like, what do I thank them with? Um, you know, they're giving me this money because I need it for this reason. And yet uh, I can't seem to thank them. They, they have everything anyways. So I wrote, I wrote a thank you note. <laughs> I wrote a small thank you note, which was, um, which they, they appreciated. But still, we want to be able to thank when we've been given so much. 
And that's what Paul uh, was encouraged by, being able to continue to, do, to thank God. And so how do we do that? How do we thank God? We do, we do good. That's how we thank God. We give our time. We give our money. God's word says that pure religion is to take after orphans and widows and to keep yourself unstained from the world. Some of you maybe need to adopt a, a kid. Some of you, and prayerfully so, and some of you need to take care of, of widows. Preach if you're called to preach. Teach if you're called to teach. Be holy. The Bible says to be perfect. Did you know that? Be perfect. And not because it buys you any favor with God at all. If you're a son or daughter, he loves you, and there's nothing you can do to make God love you any more, and there's nothing you can do to make God love you any less. But we can thank him. We can thank him with our lives. And so we're blessed to be able to give thanks, and that should be encouraging. And not only did, did, did Jesus come and encourage Paul here with godly work, but he encouraged Paul with the certainty of that promise. And that, that really is a key, key point here. A crucial reason why this was encouraging was the certainty of that promise. Paul knew Jesus just said, I'm going to Rome. That means I'm going to Rome. Right? Or at least that's what he should believe. This is like Jesus just gave Paul this suit of armor of impervious metal, and he was just able to just go where he needed to go, straight to Rome, and God would protect him and get him there. Jesus said he's going to Rome. This is like Paul gave God, gave, Paul gave, or uh, Jesus gave Paul God mode. For those of you that have played any video games, Mario 3, anybody? Stick the game genie into the cartridge and uh, you get to float through the entire level. I don't know why anybody thought that was fun. But the bottom line is is that when God says something is going to happen, it's going to happen. And you should be able to believe believe that. Jonathan Edwards wrote that God knows where the position of every dust particle is in the air. He's known that from the foundation of the world. God is in control. I think we know this as kids, even if we, we learn about Oh, God, okay, he, he's all-powerful. He knows everything. And uh, we know this as kids, and I remember me as a, a little kid, even outside, six, seven, eight years old, playing in the backyard. I would try to, like, outsmart God. I would try to, I would walk around and say, God knows everything. What if I do this? And jump to, like, a rock or something. I'm like, okay, he knew that was coming, but what if I changed my mind real quick? And, and try that again, uh, to try to outsmart him, right? It was silly for me to do that back then, and it's silly for us now to do that in our lives and think that God can be outsmarted. One commenter about this passage wrote that, no arrow can pierce any one of us until our last battle has been fought. Romans 8.28 says that God works all things for those who love him. All things. Not some things, all things for those who love him. So Jesus didn't say that Paul might get to Rome. Probably, Paul, you might get to Rome if, you know, people's free will and everything doesn't get in the way. You'll probably get to Rome. No, Jesus' promises are certain. Do you believe this? Do you believe his promises? We should seek to understand the certainty of God's promises if we don't. How do we do that? 
by, again, listening to someone like me get up here and, and, uh, and talk to try to bring you God's word. Read God's word on your own. Believe the hard parts. When they're hard, don't just skip over them or, or explain them away somehow. Endeavor to believe the hard parts. Read books on his providence. Talk with other people. Theology is not nerdy. Or if it is nerdy, uh, then some holy things are also nerdy things. Okay? We are in a war. And uh, it's glorious when we're winning that war, but war is still a messy thing. And I know that all of you are going through so many things in your lives that you just feel like you're being pelted from all sides sometimes. It's even messier when you're on the losing side of that war. And without Christ, all of us are losing. Without Christ, all of us are losing. God wins that war. So would you delight yourself this morning, if you have not already, with building God's kingdom? Do you delight yourself with that? That's what Jesus says is encouraging to you. God stands with those who are about his kingdom. God stands with those who are building his kingdom and encourages us, not with less suffering, but with the certainty of getting to do his work. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for your word. Father, thank you that it is your heart to encourage us, that this is here for us during this time in our country, in our lives, Lord, that you would be able to be here and and encourage us with your word. I pray that you would teach us the encouragement found here in your presence. Lord, I pray that you would encourage us not to try to run from suffering, but even if suffering comes, that we would still seek to build your kingdom. I pray that you would inspire us with, with godly work and how to do that and what that means in our lives. And Lord, I pray that you would give us the faith that we need to believe your promises, that they are certain. Thank you so much for your encouragement. In your beautiful name we pray. Amen.